in one way probably fears you and maybe in other ways respects you. And you never really know what anybody's giving you, if it's real or not. Imagine you could make any decision you wanted. You could do whatever you wanted. You could administer justice the way you wanted or injustice. And you had unlimited resources. And if you snapped your finger, something would happen. Imagine that. What kind of ruler would you be? You don't have to answer me, but... I think sometimes I could see myself as uh, benevolent, and then sometimes I could see myself as a tyrant, right? And these are these character things that David worked on so hard. And sometimes David was a tyrant, and then sometimes David was just a, a man after God's own heart when he had power. I think a lot of us in our life, we have power. We have control. We can make decisions. And we have freedom up to do things, right, that we want. But what do we do when we have absolute power, when we have control? David was one who continually tried to surrender it to God, even though he had it all. Such a temptation. The last ones we went over or last week was David. One of the characteristics was he was, he was ultimately, I think, satisfied in God. He, he, he sought to be satisfied, right, in God. And I think that that's important, that we can actually just go, okay, when is enough enough? When is more just, just more? When can we be satisfied? Even when everything looks absolutely crazy around us, can we find satisfaction in God? He sought kindness, and David was this kind of leader. And I think this is a, every Christian is a leader. And kindness is hugely important in our faith. I'm not talking the southern hospitality like, oh, good to see you. We should get together sometime. But you don't mean it if you lived in the south. It just means hi in, in just a, a, another way. But I'm talking kindness, where you are looking to bring kindness to someone else who may not actually, in most cases, deserve it. But you're going, I'm going to be kind. I'm going to choose that. And David loved deeply. He was unashamed. He unashamedly loved deeply. And when his heart broke, you knew it, which we'll see in a little bit. And he desired a relationship with God. <clears throat> if he could have one thing, he said, if I could have one thing, God, it's to be in your presence, in your temple with you. You know, it's that better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere, right? David wanted a relationship with God. I have had moments where God, I felt like God was pursuing me definitely more than I was pursuing him. And it's like, okay, God, all right. I love David's perspective, which is, God, I'm pursuing you. I'm after you. <clears throat> so let's look at this, these last three. And I think one of these qualities in David's journey here, just, just a very easy battle for David to win. I don't know if David assumed that, but I would as a reader. And I think what David is in this position now where they're out to war, he's in hiding. It feels like all of Israel doesn't want him as their king anymore. They like the young guy with the real wants, but he's not the king Israel at his dad for something that his dad actually created the problem. It was David's mistake. It's why we're in this war. And here's his son trying to kill him. But the thing I realized about David in this is David brought his pain to God. When David experiences deep pain, you can, cannot read the psalms of these psalms of lament 
of sadness and grief that David does realize God listens to him. David does realize something about God's character that he was very outspoken about. But David brought his pain to God. And I think that's a challenge for all of us. When I'm hurting sometimes the most, sometimes I don't feel like I even want to bring it to God. I feel like, well, if I did it to myself, I don't want to bring it to him. But David did this to himself. And he still brings his pain to God. He still brings his grief to God. He still puts his trust into God's hands. But here's what's happening in the story. David is winning the war. Great tacticianer at war. Joab hears that Absalom is riding on a donkey. That's what they rode on. And he is going through the forest. And his beautiful, long, lush hair gets caught into the trees. And he's hangling. Uh, hangling. Maybe that's a new word. He's hanging. And his troops, Joab's troops, who is David's great Great general and warrior. Not necessarily a great follower of David, though. Not necessarily someone who hears David's words and says, I'll do what's best for the king. Joab, in a way, is like, I'm done with this war. I don't want to be fighting this war anymore. And I know David said, be easy on his son if you find him, but my men are out here dying, and it's this guy's fault. So... Joab hears it, goes and finds him hanging in the tree, and then plunges three spears into his chest. And then they bury him, which was very disrespectful in that day to just dig a hole and throw him in it in the forest. Not with his fathers, not with his grandfathers, there. And so David's in this really pl weird place waiting to hear news about his son, did they, did, okay, the war's, the war's fine. We won the war, but tell me about my son. And he gets the news that his son is dead. And here's what David says. <clears throat> 2 Samuel 18, thir, uh, 33. And it says, The king was so deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept. So he, they win this war. He's been on the run. He can go back, but David in front of his whole people. And some would say, wow, he, he, he really lost it up there. You know what I'm saying? Have you ever been around somebody who seriously, I mean, you see them break in public and, and everyone's like, what do we do? Have you ever done that? Have you ever been like that? I have, where I've seen someone at a wedding, a dad give a speech and he broke down. He couldn't even collect himself. And I was like, do I go up there and finish his speech? I don't know what to do. And this is what happens to David, who's supposed to lead these people. He didn't care. David was able to embrace his pain and ex express his pain and ultimately to God bringing his pain. And here's what he says. It says, as he went up, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son. The repetition's important to realize what's happening. Absalom. Would I, would, I, would I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And, and I don't believe that this is a nice little phrase he's saying. I think he's yelling this aloud in great pain. He has lost his son, even though his son is trying to kill him. David loved deeply, but he also hurt deeply. I think sometimes when we get hurt, it's really hard to express it. 
It's really hard to, to really express exactly the deep pain that we're feeling. And so it's easier just to put it aside and say, listen, there's all kinds of reasons this, this I should be like happy about him, my son's death. But this is what I like about David. He didn't care. He wasn't really worried about what people thought. He was a dad, and he was worried about what God thought. He didn't hide it from him, uh, the people, and he did not hide it from God. Listen to what he says in Psalms. I love this insight into this type of pain. And I think for some of us, you know, uh, we got to stay strong. We always have to lift our head up. We have to kind of hold it together. But I appreciate David. He was able to, like, process it and allow it to happen and then bring it to God not try to control it himself. Psalms 102.9, this is what's going through his head. For I eat ashes like bread. These are very strong descriptions. Mingled tears with my drink. Uh, because of the indignation and anger, right, of God. You have taken me up and thrown me down, God. This is raw. Verse 11, my days are like an evening sh uh, shadow, I wither away like grass. But you, O oh Lord, are enthroned forever. I think that we can be mad and we can be upset and we can be frustrated. You cannot read the Psalms without David sometimes borderline being angry and even upset about what's happening here with God. But David always has the right perspective when he finishes those. And he says, you know, but you, God, are enthroned forever. You know what you're doing. I have been up and I have been down. I feel like all I do is taste my tears. But you, God, are enthroned forever. I, I know, you know, everybody hurts, right? Everybody struggles. But I think sometimes we think God, it, you know, it isn't there or he's not present or, you know, what good would it be? We're hurting so bad and we close inward. But David allowed people to see his grief. And at the end of the day, as hard as it has been, as hard as this has been for David, he still said, but God, I trust you. You're not going to leave me alone. You're not going to go away. I love that perspective and hope that he, I still hope in you, God, even though I'm going through this very difficult time. Um, when Jesus was approaching Jerusalem and he was riding in at this triumphant entry, he looks at the city. And, and I love it that the writers of the scripture let us know that Jesus was someone who was very much in touch with how he felt. And the Bible says that as he came closer to Jerusalem, he saw the city ahead and he began to weep. Now, this goes all the way back to David. So David is returning and returning because he's returning to his kingdom. He's returning. He sees it only through man's eyes. Jesus, when he sees Jerusalem, sees it as a father's eyes. And now listen to this. How I wish today. That you of all people would understand the way of peace. Jesus is at a place where I wish it wasn't so hard. I wish you had what is promised you. I wished you were living out what God has for you. But what I love about this is that Jesus ultimately will give them the peace that they've always wanted. 
and he will do it because he hears their cry. Psalm 37, 17, the Lord hears his people. David knows this now. When they call to him for help, he rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. If you are in this place, or if you enter into this place of a brokenheartedness or being crushed, I, I just love this character of God is that actually he's closer than you would realize. We may not feel that he is. We may not feel even worthy to have God in our brokenness. I don't, is this us or is this a phone? I don't know. Oh, okay. Okay. Okay, okay, thank you. All right, just want to make sure I didn't have to run out of here. I mean, everybody first. I would go last, of course. (laughs) I did eye that door for a second. This is bad. Ryan. Okay, here it is again. Um, I think but what I have realized, though, about this is that what David has here is that he, he, he does highlight something that he knows very true about God's character. And is that when you most want to hide, it's when God is most near. And, and I just want to encourage anyone here who may feel that they're there, that God is actually much closer than you think. It's almost kind of we think God is around us when things are going so great. Oh, the Lord is blessing me. God's with me. But I think, yes, but we tend to think that it's only in the good times, in the momentous times. It's the times when we're doing everything great. But we have to know that God is very near and will rescue those. Somebody is really serious out there. Okay. Um, I like this quote. Now, I'm going to give you some context of a quote because, you know, um, I, I hear a lot of people say really like, oh, that sounds really wise. But there's something about when somebody has lived this experience, when they say the words, you know it has weight, right? You know they've wrestled with this themselves. It's not a very kind cliche or it was, it was like repeated and they saw it on Pinterest. This is like a real deep thought. And so this is why I want to tell you a little bit about the background before I read this quote from this lady named Elizabeth Elliot. A friend, a friend of mine let, uh, kind of first brought me in on who, who, who she was because he was doing this movie about her life and her husband's life. And he was like, hey, have you ever heard of this lady? I'm like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know the story. And when he told me about it, it I, to me, it was very curious because, like, I thought, okay, so she was a missionary. Something really bad happened. Sarah, how dare you? Okay, wow, front row, really? Okay, so... If anybody wants to just take a second and silence their phones. <laughs> oh, is this what it does? Well, I'm going to write a strongly worded letter to Apple. I just, I'm preaching a sermon. Okay. Let me try to get you back here for a second. Elizabeth Elliot, why her story is important and why what she says has going to have some weight is because she, she was a girl who lived the words. She was born in, in 1926. She was born into a missionary family, so she understood the difficulty of 
of, of that lifestyle. As she grew up, she knew she wanted to go to, to actually preach to indigenous cultures. And so she took classic, uh, classic Greek uh, in college. She wanted to learn how to translate the Bible into uh, other cultures. She married a guy that she met in school. His name is Jim Elliott. And they were down in this tr- very small tribe in Ecuador. And they were ministering to this tribe. Her, her husband goes out one day to go to talk to the tribe members. And as he's approaching them with these other uh, four guys with him, they are all stabbed to death with spears. And all of them die, and she's left there. Why I have this picture of her with her little child is because she decided to stay and continue to minister to those tribe members who killed her husband. I, I think when somebody experiences something in such a way, but they go, but I'm not going to stop. Says a lot about who she is. But it doesn't stop there. You know, after her husband and her fellow missionaries were killed, she stayed so many years, several years. But then here's another situation where she marries another guy, a college professor. And then within four years, he dies. And then we'll end up marrying another person and ends up, he does live. And he actually ends up outliving her. She's an amazing person, and she is, becomes a professor. She was one of the, if you look at your NIV, she was one of the contributors to the team that did the translation for the NIV, prolific author of over 20 books. She spoke and hosted a, 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 all over the country, but hosted a regular radio show, and I love what she says. Every time she got on the air, she would say this, you are loved with an ever, everlasting love. That's what the Bible says, and underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot. This is someone who experienced a lot of pain, a lot of tragedy, a lot of difficulty, like David. Now listen to what she said. I am not a theologian or a scholar, but I am very aware of the fact that pain is necessary to, uh, is necessary to all of us. In my own life, I think I can honestly say that out of the deepest pain has come the strongest conviction of the presence of God and the love of God. I think her words have weight. She's not someone who just read that phrase. She lived this. And was to be able to say that after she's been through so much says a lot about that. I think some of us are in the same place where we've been through a lot of pain. It will always come, and sometimes it's necessary. But what is God doing with that pain? What are we allowing him to do? And how are we allowing him to show us his love in the midst of that pain in his presence? David was able to do this. It's what made him great. And I think David and Elizabeth, the lady we just talked about, realized that God was near and they, it's, God was near and they could trust God with their pain. And he would do miraculous things. I could ask for many of you to walk up here and share your story about how God took pain in your life and turned it into a purpose. Something incredible. You felt his presence. I could do this and the, and the line would be around here and we'd be here all day. God continually is around the brokenhearted. Another quality that in this journey on David's return back to Jerusalem is this, is he mourns his son, and he has to start the hard road back to Jerusalem. But one of the things you're going to see about David that made him unique is he was a man of mercy. 
man, mercy is a, um, it's a, it's a becoming an extinct quality. But I love the Bible because if you just look up mercy alone, you will see that the Bible is littered with instructions to be merciful. When you have power, you're merciful. And I don't think it, you have to have absolute power to be merciful. It can be in a conversation. It can be about somebody who's hurting or in a conversation when that person's not present. Are we merciful, right? Who are we? And I kind of want us to think of it this way. Who are we when our enemies fall into our hands? When that boss that you don't like, finally you have something on your boss. Or that coworker that you were both just, you know, it was like that coworker you didn't like, but you're both gunning for the same job, and then you became their boss, and then now they're in your hands now. Are you merciful? Or that person who made a mistake, and then you now have power because they have wronged you, are you merciful? David was this kind of person. Abraham Lincoln said this. This is one of my favorite quotes. He said this, Nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. That will test you. How merciful you are. How kind you are. Right? I've never had this test before. I've never had much power in my life. Uh, I did once, though. And I, it was a very much the situation I'm not proud of, and I really struggled with it. But I was at this church I was working at. It was in Texas, and uh, I was the youth and college director. But then I got the promotion to be over all of the generations. So it was a big job, 25 employees uh, that I oversaw. It was a big department. And I remember when I first came into the church, the children's ministry and the youth ministry seemed to have been at odds. This was very odd. They always fought for more money, complained when we got it. And then I remember one time, one of the children's uh, leaders brought me into his office and, and, and really began to, we're peers, began to ream me out and tell me how disrespectful I was because I didn't call him pastor. I thought that was weird. But then, so as we're, this, this feud was happening, we just kind of had a, a standoff understanding. And I just like, what is the deal? Like, I don't know what's going on. And I will never forget, I got brought up to uh, what would be our executive team at this church. And then um, and they said, hey, you're going to oversee all the children's, which meant that I was this guy's boss. And so I had complete power over his budget. I had complete power over everything. And it was interesting because I'd never really had that before with someone who I really just always struggled with. And I remember sitting down, and, and, uh, or I, he came into my office at that point, <laughs> and he came into my office Kind of hear, you know, report, and, and I remember his demeanor changed. Suddenly, I was funnier. It was weird. <laughs> suddenly, I, my ideas were good, and suddenly, like, uh, you know, I didn't have to call him pastor anymore. It was great. It was a weird thing, and I remember struggling with it, like, oh, I, want, I, I, I don't want to be as nice as I should be to you. And it was hard. I just wanted to know. I was merciful. But I struggle with it. It's amazing that even in, I, I'm doing ministry, and I'm struggling with that over another pastor. 
It's real. The struggle's real. Mine was a ministry struggle. Yours can be a relational struggle or a work struggle. I don't know. But one of the things I want to strive for and that David did is he was merciful. And he had absolute power. And yet he was still merciful. The war had ended, and here's where you're going to see his mercy. The war had ended, and if you guys remember, there's a guy we talked about when David was on his, you know, kind of walk of shame, if you will, leaving Jerusalem, being driven out. There was a guy who was just throwing rocks at David because he was like, you're, you're, you're a bloodthirsty king. You're, it's basically like shamed David nonstop, threw dirt at him, harassed him. One of David's guys even said, do you want me to go up and cut his head off? Like, and David's like, no, just let him do it. Maybe I deserve it. Maybe God will do something great out of it. I don't know. And this guy who was the most vocal about David's failure, David's on his way back. News comes that David won the war, and look who comes crawling back. This guy, 2 Samuel 19. And it says, and, and then Shimei, the son of Girah, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. David's crossing back over to the Jordan to go towards Jerusalem. And he said, king, let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day that my Lord, uh, the king, left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. And I'm like, when you read it, you're like, really? Okay. For the servant knows that he has sinned. And what's amazing about this is as David's on his way back, this guy who was the most brutal to him is saying, I was wrong. I've sinned. I'm sorry. And David at that moment gave him forgiveness, and even his troops were bothered by it. But David was a man of mercy. He received a lot of mercy. 2 Samuel 19, the very next story was a guy that uh, basically David felt had abandoned him, left him. And David had given him so much. But when he needed him, he wasn't there. And he comes to David and he says, oh, explaining his situation, giving him essentially excuses. And the king said to him, why speak any more on these matters? And he forgives him and restores him. It's hard when you have that much power, David's troops didn't even understand, but David was someone who walked in mercy. Psalms 103, this is the why David walks in mercy. If you struggle with walking in mercy, if you struggle, then this is the mindset David had. The Lord is compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not. Now, remember these will not and does not. Will not always. Uh, sorry. Uh, sorry. He Will not always accurse, nor wow. Will he harbor his anger forever? Verse ten. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquity. For as high as heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. Verse twelve. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. That's the God David knew. And how could David, a man who's taken so much mercy and grace from God, then go and turn it on another? That's not the kind of leader God wants. Jesus continually tried to warn us against that type of behavior, taking grace and then not giving it to another or mercy. 
Alexander Pope is a very interesting guy, great poet, one of the probably the most famous poets and, and writers in the late 1700s. It's interesting because I, I, I want to know the background behind him. He it looks seemingly just like a cool whatever guy, uh, but this guy had a really tough background. Uh, he had contracted tuberculosis. It compressed his spine in, 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 in a way, kind of stunted his entire growth. He ended up only being just a little over four feet tall. And from then on, his eyes would flare up. He had issues all the time. No one liked him. He, nobody would date him. People wrote jokes about him publicly, right? He was somebody who went through a lot of difficulty and was bullied, if you will, back in those days and was an outcast and ostracized. He didn't fit the picture, okay? He wasn't tall, dark, and handsome, okay? It was not the case. And he had struggles and health issues all the time. So I like when he says this prayer he says, teach me to feel another's woe, to hide the fault I see, that mercy I to others show, that mercy show to me. That's such a good little like prayer rhyme of like, I want to know how to see someone else's pain. Mercy's been so good to me, Right? And so when he became famous, he made a lot of money for uh, translating the uh, Iliad. And he, he had a lot of clout. His writings could change the political direction of Great Britain at that time. And it did. He could say what he wanted to whom had done him wrong. And he didn't. He sought mercy when he had power. First Peter 3, 9 says this, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, meaning the opposite way, bless for those, uh, so, sorry, bless for this, uh, for to this you were called. So do not give them evil, but bless them. I, I, I just, I love the mentality of mercy. Because yeah, I think we will all struggle with it at times when we, when we are called to give it. But God is calling us to give it. Rick Warren, who I just, this is one of my, I think, favorite statements of his. He says, it's so practical. It says, and you know, when you've experienced grace, you feel like you've been forgiven. You're a lot more forgiving towards others. You're a lot more gracious to others. You can't read David's story. And then go, why did he forgive those guys who were so cruel to him? You can't read his story and the grace that he had been given from God and the provision God still cared for him, even though David did this to himself. And not think, how can I be more gracious to other people? The last thing, and we'll, we'll start to close a little bit with this, is David ultimately was a servant. The best leaders are servant leaders. The best leaders are people who will lead and serve for the good of people. David was this kind of leader. It took him a while to become this, I will say. But God is looking for that in us as believers. The Bible says that when the world sees you, they see Jesus. And how you love, they'll know whether you are of Jesus by how you love. And when you are out to go serve and not be served, then 
it becomes more and more clear that you're holding on to that attribute, that characteristic that David did and ultimately Christ exemplified as a servant. But David's servant, and at the very end of the book of Samuel, you'll see his commitment to be a servant leader, someone who cares for people and will put them first instead of himself anymore. So he commits to rule God's way. And when David ruled for himself, if you know the story well, it just it's, it's a catastrophe. When David decides to take his journey into his own hands, do what he feels is best or what he desires, it's always catastrophic to the journey of Israel into David. And so he recommits it. And here's David's really ultimate, we'll see his last words. Second Samuel twenty two twenty eight. 28, it says, for you, he's talking to God, you save a humble people. He's talking about Israel. But your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For you, uh, sir, sir, by you I can run against a troop. And by my God I can leap over a wall. And listen to 31, because I like this. He says, this God, his ways are perfect. This God. I like how he even says it. This God, his ways are perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. When he rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. So this is kind of his instruction. If you want to rule justly, rule knowing that God is all-powerful. You know, it's kind of funny. I was talking to my friend uh, who is a pastor, but he just got his uh, mortgage license. He was one of our Fifth Sunday speakers, and he um, is making a great leap of faith to transition into this career. And I said, well, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad that you're doing mortgages. If I know people, I'll send them your way and, um, who are looking. And I said, because I, I know that you know you're accountable to something much greater. And he's like, yeah, my boss is, uh, doesn't really like it if I step out of line. And I, I do fear him. And I love that. Because he knows that he will walk in character because he's accountable to God. And David ultimately says that those who judge rightly or, or justly, those who are integrous and honest, those who hold the standard, even though when everything else says you don't have to, culture, power, money, I re report to a higher power that I am in awe of. And so I... I have no doubt, my friend, will treat people kindly and justly and fairly. Second uh, Samuel 23, he finishes it out this way. He draws them, uh, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth in the uh, cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. And I was talking about how great God is. For uh, does not my house stand so for, with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordering in all things and secure. And in, in his final breath, if you will, in, in, the, in these books, he's reminding us all again that God lived up to his side of the deal, even when David didn't. And God secured his side of the deal, even when David didn't always. But he's inspired by that. Now, you've been given a covenant with Christ. 
And you don't always live up to the deal of the covenant, right? We aren't always perfect. But God will always live up to his covenant. And this is what he reminds us all of, is that God is better. And he will hold his covenant no matter how up and down your journey is. This last thought into David's brain comes from Psalms. It's a prayer of stewardship then. It's his commitment to the people. It's, it's really, it's, David makes this final statement that it's about the people, it's not about me. And he says this in Psalms 122, pray for peace in Jerusalem. This is now that he's returned and he's committed to ruling for God. May all who love this city prosper. Jerusalem, may there be peace within your walls and prosperity in your palaces. For uh, Verse 8, for the sake of my family and friends, I will say, may you have peace. For the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I will seek what is best for you, O Jerusalem. I love that because now David's the kind of leader that is about what God is about. This makes David a man after God's own heart. This is him being a steward of what God's given him. As believers, God has given us stewardship over our families, our friends, our Christian community, and also those who we encounter in the world. How do we steward that? Are we thinking about us or are we thinking about what God wants us to think about and what he wants us to be about? Could you guys bow your heads? If I could summarize David's whole journey, if it's about obedience, this is the phrase of obedience. And he writes this in Psalm 143.10. And if you want to know how to be obedient, if you want to know how to have the heart of God, and seek after God like David did. This was his mindset. Teach me to teach to me your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Just God, I am about you. Teach me, I'm following. You will always bring me to a place where it's level ground, whether how deep it goes. Bring me to the level ground, God. This is what made him obedient. Teach me, God. I'm following you. Where you go. So I'd like to challenge our church this week and maybe post the David series to pray that very same prayer. God, teach me. Show me where to go. I'll follow. Right? Bring some... Bring some situations into my way, and I'll say yes. God, if there's areas in my life where I'm not obedient and I know it, God, help me to just say no and yes to you. The whole story of David is David was basically a yes man with false or a yes woman. David was just about being obedient to God. When even when he couldn't see what was in front of him, he said yes. And so as you walk out this week, pray, God, I want to be obedient. Put me in the game. I want to follow you. I want to be a person after your own heart. And watch what God does. And you might not always love what he brings your way, but when he brings it, don't be afraid to say yes. 
Because he might bring you someone who's very, very, very difficult in God saying, I need you for this person. You might be brought into a very hard situation, but God's going, they need light in this darkness right now. You might have something in your life that felt impossible to get rid of because it was absolutely disobedient to God. And, and God is saying, listen, this has to end now. Learn to be a yes person with God. That's what David did. It's what made him great. It wasn't his power. It wasn't his strength. It wasn't his money. It wasn't any of that. It was the fact that he would say yes to God. God, we love you. We thank you, God, for this whole series, God. I ask that you just thank you for what you've done in my life personally as I've had some very difficult times in my life throughout this studying for this series, God, but you spoke to me directly, so I'm going to say thank you first. Many times I needed to hear what I had to hear in this story in my own life. And God, I just thank you for the stories I've heard from people in the church saying, man, I needed to hear what was said today about David. And God, I ask that you just don't, if you let, that you take this word that's been deposited in our heart, God, and then just let it grow and sprout fruit that we just will be blown away by as it continues to grow. We love you. We thank you, God, for who you are, your character, and ultimately for loving us like you love David. And God, we want to love you like he did. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you sing with me this last song?